Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Disrupt. We're excited to be here. Just as a side note, you might hear some animal friends in the podcast. <laughs> there might be some scuffles, some meows, or barks, but mm-hmm. that's COVID life. So <laughs> COVID life. Their favorite activity is interrupting my Zoom calls. So I feel like podcasts will be no different. <laughs> Today, we are doing climate change. First of a couple episodes, so don't worry, we're not trying to fit all of climate change into one. Uh, we're just going to touch on some of the theoretical ideas that are kind of outside main Western academia. And then later on, you'll hear more about those. You'll hear from some activists, some scholars, but this is our kind of just entry point for you. Is climate change bad, Bridget? (laughs) (laughs) Very, very big problem. The problem with studying climate change kind of within traditional international relations theories is that it's not really a big problem for something like realism, who's always focused on, oh, well, you know, climate change is there, but it's only important because it's going to end in water resource conflict and food security conflicts, and they don't actually talk about solving it at all. Realism really just sees climate change as a precipitator of conflict between states, and it's not Mm -hmm. really considered to be a holistic problem in terms of, you know, we should protect the environment because it's a source of indigenous knowledge or it has, you know, environmental degradation would have very real cultural impacts on some populations. Um, So it's never looked at from that perspective, from a realist perspective. Um, Yeah. And a good example of kind of how a realist perspective would look at consequences of climate change is the Syrian civil war. Um, So a realist perspective might say, oh, the displacement of the Iraqi population has strained natural resources of countries, um, which is resulting in a lot of other issues like water shortages, desertification, limited renewable energy sources. But they see it as a conflict problem, not as a climate change problem, which means that, you know, how are they going to come up with a solution if they're not actually looking for one? Mm -hmm. It also doesn't take in to account different identities that might Mm -hmm. be affected by climate change. So we know that the effects of climate change, like natural disasters and whatnot, they tend to have a disproportionate impact on people of color and women. Mm -hmm. And so, and especially people in the subaltern or non-Western states, but that is never really taken into consideration by realism. So it's kind of a wrap on realism. (laughs) We don't like it. It's not working for us. Um, the it's other, not working for anyone, really. It's not working for anyone. <laughs> um, and the second kind of option from traditional IR is liberalism. And their answer from what we talked about last week is just cooperation and institutions are everything. Yes. All the institutions give me all the treaties. <laughs> but, well, maybe not, but. Well, it's kind of a but. It's, mm, you know, we've seen the limits of of what international cooperation can do on climate change. You know, countries, (laughs) United States, you know, (laughs) get big mad and stomp their feet when they don't like something. So it's the same focus on states, which then means that if it's not in the state's interest to do anything or to join the Paris Climate um, Accords, then they won't do it. So great solution not found. (laughs) Big problem. Yeah. Big problem, like we said. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and also, just as a charge against liberalism that realists sometimes make in terms of the ability for international institutions and international cooperation to fix the problem of climate change, 
um, that this creates a free rider problem, which leaves powerful countries or wealthier countries to foot the bill on climate change action, which you know realists are mm-hmm. not necessarily keen on helping others no. in a lot of ways. So that doesn't work for them. No. <laughs> but there are other ways of thinking about these The good things. news <laughs> is we are not stuck with these. No. My personal favorite theory to think about anything, but particularly climate change, is decolonial theory. Oh my god, the best. It's I the love most decolonial wonderful theory. theory. <laughs> um, and that is essentially this idea that the effects of colonialism still continue to endure to the present, meaning that these same like social and political hierarchies that existed during colonialism continue to be reproduced again and again, creating these exclusionary practices that shape geopolitics and the production of knowledge. Within decolonial theory, there's also a lot of connection to other um, non-orthodox theories of international relations. So environmental concerns within decolonial theory are also often connected to capitalist formation and how colonialism, um, a lot of colonialism was based on capitalism and the accumulation of capital. Another aspect of like that a decolonial approach can help us understand is that the climate change solutions that um, countries and institutions endorse are pretty much just Western and they're historically rooted in racist and colonial ways of thinking about the world. So it's anthropocentric, human versus environment, rather human in environment and kind of reproduces this destruction of nature again and again. Okay, so an example of how environmental degradation is linked to colonialism or coloniality, colonial thinking, whatever term you want to use, is the Keystone XL pipeline. That's um, people have been trying to get running across North America, but it runs through indigenous lands and has no respect for indigenous desires, boundaries, what have you. It's just another way of imposing these Western ideas onto historically subordinated populations. And another thing that decolonial theory brings up is the problem with green technologies and green capitalism, because a lot of these require environmentally destructive mining for precious metals, which impacts, you know, indigenous people, subaltern people. So it's just gives a better idea of, um, it's a, it gives you a better idea of like how there are still so many hierarchies that shape how the world works. So are we done with decolonialism? Or is there anything else we want to say? I think a good way of summing decolonial theory up in terms of climate change is that it just kind of unpacks a lot of these naturalized way we have of speaking about climate change where, you know, like, oh, we have to find the best solution and geoengineering and mm-hmm. la la la. It just kind of makes you pause and think, where are these ideas coming from? You know, what kind of colonial legacies and racist legacies are being reproduced in that? Mm-hmm. Are we only thinking about Western ways, Western technologies Mm -hmm. to deal with the effects of climate change instead of deferring to local populations on how to best mitigate, you know, what they're seeing in their, exactly, in their localities and whatnot. Yeah. So I am definitely going to defer to Gabby on the indigenous, indigenous perspectives Mm -hmm. on climate change because she's the, she's the resident expert in that. (laughs) So... It's hard to like focus everything down on one thing in critical indigenous theory, but you know, cause there are obviously lots of different indigenous people. There's different tribes, different groups that all have different ways of understanding climate change and understanding the world. Um, but the main kind of 
thrust of indigenous, critical indigenous theory when it comes to climate change is a focus on land and that climate change isn't the kind of main outcome, but it's a symptom of the larger problem of not being connected to the land and not um, understanding the land. So we're out of balance, humans and the environment. Um, and so the theory in general seeks to understand how structures and relations of power, particularly in settler colonialism, um, kind of can contribute to the discussion on climate change. And it's very similar to decolonial theory. A lot of the same ideas are kind of coming out, but it comes from a different perspective. So decolonial theory is more about emancipating and focusing on colonial legacies. And indigenous theory does that too, but it's also focused on this idea of land, of having balance with the environment and kind of rebutting these Western ideas of human versus environment and focusing on humans as a part of the environment. If you're an indigenous scholar and, or you have knowledge about indigenous theories of the environment, we would love to hear from you. Yes. Um, talk about your work, get your perspectives on, mm. on this. This is. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, I have looked, I'm quote unquote, our resident expert, but only insofar as much that I have read a little bit more. <laughs> You've read more than me. So yeah. <laughs> so the next theory we want to talk about is green theory. Which seems pretty obvious, you know? <laughs> That's like a one-to-one -one comparison on environmental concerns and... Yeah. Yeah. The, so the connections between green theory and climate change, environmental degradation, pretty obvious. Um, but green theory is pretty much just about climate change um, and how climate change is affecting international relations. Climate change is seen as the most important security, economic issue, what have you, by far because green theorists recognize that it constitutes a global existential threat. So there are different levels of that, obviously, like different countries and different populations will feel the effects of climate change more than others, but it will catch up with everyone eventually. What's crazy is this is not a bigger theory. Um, you know, once we learned and tried to become more familiar with green theory, the first thing that I thought was like, well, why is this not like with realism? Yeah. Like this is such a big problem. Um, but this is not to say that green theory is, you know, monolithic at all. There are lots of different strands of green theory and they all look at prioritize different, different aspects of the environment in in their analysis some strains incorporate um things like race gender sexuality class and whatnot into the green analysis of environmental issues and a lot of it focuses on exploitation of those different factors and one of the main strands of green theory comes from a marxist understanding which for our not internationally mind listeners is not um, purely communist. It's just a different strand of theory um, in international relations that focuses on like large economic structures and like kind of talks about the consequences of capitalism. So within green theory, a Marxist understanding involves talking about the exploitation of capitalism as a source of most of the environmental problems. Yes. In a lot of Marxist and non-Marxist conceptions, actually, of green theory, 
green theorists also talk about how much of the burden in dealing with climate change will be on subaltern non-Western states because that's where a lot of production inputs come from. So a lot of resource extraction and that's subsequently where a lot of degradation is taking place. A good kind of sub-theory example of this is ecologically unequal exchange, which is this idea that um, the world is kind of split into the global north and global south and the exchange is not equal. So countries in the global south tend to do more production, they tend to have more pollution because the processes that they're doing produce more of that um, and kind of creates these ecological debts. Whereas, you know, countries in the north are like, oh, I, I am carbon zero, look at me, carbon neutral. <laughs> look at me, I'm an electric car, <laughs> pat myself on the back. Yeah, let me export all of my electricity production. Um, which is let me throw away all of my you know unwanted tech mm -hmm. to some poorer country yeah yeah green theory also talks about how western countries will in the long run have better financial and infrastructural resources to deal with the effects of climate change and so because of this western countries continue to pollute and kind of put off dealing with climate change because it affects the less powerful countries first. And Tuvalu, it's a small Polynesian island, is a very good example of this. It's actually sinking because of the sea level rise and coastal erosion, which has been, you know, mostly caused by polluter countries. Tuvalu has not, you know, single-handedly done this to themselves. They, I mean, given their, what, I think their population is like 11,000. So, Gosh. you know, they probably have not contributed to this at all. Um, but they are seeing the very real effects of climate change and it's estimated to not be inhabitable um, in a very like relatively short amount of time. So this native population will be displaced. Um, and also just the different effects of climate change are having a significant impact on the health of the inhabitants of Tuvalu, just showcasing that the burden of climate change and its effects are being placed on poorer people of color. And another aspect of this tends to do with countries that are quote unquote underdeveloped. Um, and countries in the global north will say, oh, well, you can't develop more, you can't build roads, and you can't do these very carbon heavy processes because that will contribute to climate change and then we're all going to suffer. Which, of course, obscures the fact that most, if not all, the countries in the global north have already done this. Um, and so they're essentially saying, you can't be like us and have the same standard of living, but we can. And that's just life, which is, you know, such a problematic way of thinking about the world. A lot of scholars tend to stick to just one theory or another in their analysis, in their research. But me personally, I think it's better to kind of switch out lenses mm. depending on the problem that you're using because... I just don't think it's not, it's not reasonable and it's also just not effective to use the same theory to look at every problem. I mean, it would be like if you were hungry, so the lens you were using was thinking about hunger and then you're like, but I think I'm going to go clothes shopping now. Like that, that wouldn't be that the correct work. lens. <laughs> like you need to change like, your lens. I am still hungry. Yeah. <laughs> still hungry and I'm not going to buy anything, which is maybe okay. But like, it's this idea of, you can't just look at things through one lens. That's just not how humans work. That's not how we should be like approaching problems. No, and kind of like we said in our intro, that just implies that all humans have the same way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And that's just, we just know that's not the reality and there are actual 
consequences, political consequences. Are we good with green theory? I think we're good with green yeah. theory. If you are a green theorist <laughs> and would love to talk about your research or climate change, slide into our DMs. You're always welcome. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I think one of the takeaways that we want to like talk about, like for the whole episode, but also just so you hear it a couple more times, we are, you know, younger scholars. So we want, you know, to hear from everyone, particularly <laughs> if you're from the global South, because we want these different kinds of perspectives that aren't coming from, you know, traditional ways of thought. What theories are you thinking are the most convincing? I am, I mean, I'm always convinced by decolonial <laughs> theory, you know, I just think it offers so much in terms of breaking norms and stereotypes mm -hmm. and just challenging the ways in which we are, at least I have been taught to see the world from this very like Eurocentric Western perspective um, and just looking at the legacy of colonialism, capitalism, um, and how that's impacted the environment. So I, I love going to decolonial theory first because I feel like it just offers a lot in terms of challenging the status quo and challenging typical conceptions of whatever issue you're looking at. But then also green theory. I do really like green theory for this one. Huh, yeah. I wonder why. <laughs> Yeah, for me, the decolonial theory and indigenous theories are the most like convincing as well. Mm -hmm. And part of that is, I think, just this idea that, you know, I don't know, in Western Eurocentric perspective, it's like we have to keep innovating. We're going to like invent our way out of climate change. And that's, you know, great on one hand, like fantastic. Let's keep doing good scientific work. But on the other, if we don't rethink these um colonial and racist legacies that technology and ideas are kind of prefaced on, then we're just going to be creating and innovating in a way that kind of reproduces those hierarchies again and again. And I think my favorite quote in this sense comes from Secret Feminist Agenda podcast <laughs> by a scholar called Audre Lorde, um, where she says the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Mm -hmm. And you know, if we keep using these same theories like realism and liberalism that are created by old white men in the midst of the Cold War, where they just really cared about powerful men in states, then like we're never going to come up with solutions to climate change. That's just not going to happen. No, one of my favorite examples of how, like I think one really good example of how destructive like Western solutions to environmental degradation, climate change, all these issues is um, these green technologies that have kind of proliferated in recent years. But then when you actually look at these green technologies, they're super harmful for the environment in terms of, you know, they require very specific precious metals um, mm -hmm. that need to be mined. And where are these mines located? Often in very like poor countries or underdeveloped countries that are subservient to the interests of the West. And so mm -hmm. there's, like in, in theory, these green technologies are great and solutions to the problems we're seeing from climate change, but also there there is a hidden darker side to it that's just not as talked about, which like indigenous theory, decolonial theory, all these different theories kind of illuminate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think another aspect that you kind of touched on that decolonial theory also brings to the table, and so does indigenous theory and many other theories, 
is just being kind of cognizant about the extent and depth and persistence and how like incumbent power is so embedded in our society. And it's it's easy to kind of think like, oh, well, we're past that. We're, you know, working together with people rather than subjugating them. But it's really important to kind of recognize how these power structures are so embedded in the way that we think, in the way that we produce products, in the way that we, you know, think about the future. And if we don't try to unpack those, even if we're not successful, if we don't make the effort, then we're just missing out such an important part. Of Absolutely. So now we're at the part of our podcast where we're going to have a kind of reflexive moment where we're going to talk about, you know, what... What biases did you recognize were showing up in yourself yeah. as you as mm-hmm. you were researching? Yeah, I had I had two kind of biases. The, the first was like this, I mean, I'm American, so there's this very kind of myth of like, let's innovate, we can solve like together towards progress. And even though... Like, logically, I know that linear progress is a lie, and it's just, you know, really problematic, and it's a foundational myth. It still makes my instinct want to be like, the theories that we use should promote solutions, and we, you know, structural things are important, but really we should be talking about what we can solve and what we can produce. And, you know, I know that that's not a good way of looking at it, but the the bias is still there. Mm-hmm. And I think also just... I found, and I'm not, I've never really kind of leaned towards liberalism, but I did find myself um, thinking a lot about these liberal ideas in terms of like, oh, can a treaty solve this? Or like, how can international international institutions, international agreements um, work into this? But I mean, the reality for a lot of subaltern and non-Western states is that they are just kind of that Western states end up dominating Mm -hmm. these um, Western states, Western problems end up dominating um, these treaties and these discussions. So it's just, it's, it still further marginalizes the people that we're supposedly trying to work towards justice for. Yeah, that kind of plays into my second bias that I noticed. And we didn't talk about it that much, but um, there's a strand of like decolonial green theory um, that talks about conservation. And, you know, we might think of, you know, oh, conservation is good. We want the earth to be clean. And, you know, we don't want to have the human uh, consequences of the earth have a lot of problems in the future. Um, But there's really this kind of intrinsic idea where you're actually saying, I want this to be taken away from indigenous people. And the whole, you know, idea of the wilderness is pristine. No one lives there. And that's just like patently untrue. Like indigenous people Mm -hmm. have always lived um, places before. And when we say no one lives there and we want to conserve this, we're saying you should not live there and you should, you know, not um, be able to live on your ancestral lands because we want to save the land in a way that is like very Western and very economic and capitalistic in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about all the different ways that uh, this guise of conservation has mm-hmm. been used <laughs> to actually further Western interests. I know there's so many examples of like the American military taking over um, different islands um, outside of the continental United States as like a way to promote conservation or whatnot, but really it's just like a military tactic um, to advance 
American military, American strategic interests. So it's not, you know, conservation doesn't always um, work to benefit what you think it's benefiting. Surprise. You know, one of the important aspects of kind of all of this critical family of theories is recognizing that you as a reader or an observer are not neutral. You like come with, you know, where you come from, your beliefs, your religion, your values, and they always play a role in how you read a text, which is, you know, part of why we wanted to have this section and to talk about critical theories, because it's just a more nuanced understanding of the world. If you want to talk about your research, if you know anyone whose research you think we should uh, promote, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Also, if there's anything that we messed up or um, got wrong or talked about in a, a very Western way or just didn't come at it the right way, please let us know. We absolutely want to continue correcting those biases in ourselves, um, And we're absolutely open to feedback if you're willing to take the time to share with us. So yeah, yeah. thank you all yeah. so much for listening. The next time we talk to you, <laughs> We'll discuss queer theory, feminist theory, and critical race theory, and kind of what they have to say about climate change. Mm -hmm.